Count them down, Richard. I'm I'm ready, man. Okay, okay, right, ready? <laughs> Focused. One, two, three, clap. Doesn't get much better than that. There I don't think, Brian. I, th- I think we peaked. Like, uh, I, I don't know if we need to talk about anything else. I think we I think we can just say goodbye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> say Night, that. folks. <laughs> that was it. That's as much as your gang. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I will be your host for today, or tomorrow, or Wednesday, or Saturday, or whenever you listen, because after all, it's your podcast. Now, um, we have spoken to a lot of Kickstarter uh, designers in the past. We've also had people who are just game designers and putting their product out there. We have recently spoken to fulfillment companies and we speak to a lot of content creators. But what happens once the Kickstarter dust is settled, once the funding goal has been achieved, once the targets have been hit, and then that money is sitting there, and then somebody's actually got to get these games together and ready. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to talk to somebody from the actual manufacturing side of you know the industry so I'm very I'm kind of very excited to actually have um, Brent Kinney and Brent Kinney is the vice president of business development for Panda Game Manufacturing and uh, if you've the word if the name Panda game or Panda GM sounds uh, familiar, you know, they've done a couple of small games, you know, Scythe, um, you know, Viticulture, kind of games like that. So, um, hey Brent, how are you doing? Hey Richard, uh, doing real well. Thanks for thanks for having me. No, it's, as I say, it's, um, it's about time. We got um, some people on that actually do the hard work <laughs> putting the games together so they could, you know, so they could... Uh, so we could have a chat and we could find out um a kind of a little bit a little bit more. Um for people who haven't listened to us to us for the first time, um, thank you for joining us. The reason that we do this is there's quite simply not enough podcasts out there about board games. Um and there's certainly only a couple of us in Scotland. There's ourselves, there's Unlucky Frog Gaming, there's also Brainwaves who are out and about as well. And as I say, the second reason that we're doing this is because it's about time we let the manufacturers of the pressed and printed trees have their voice on this show. So, um, Brent, do you want... I mean, before we obviously we jump into your career and obviously talk about um, Panda itself, do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of your, your, kind of your history with the hobby yourself, how you got involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um I've I've really been a gamer my entire life. You know, when I was when I was younger, uh, one of my earliest memories was uh, playing Yahtzee with my grandmother. 
Oh yeah. Uh, when she would come to visit. So, you know, we'd, we'd roll the dice and, and try to add up the numbers and get the highest score. And, and, you know, you get really, really excited if you get the, the five of a kind Yahtzee. I yeah. think it's mandatory that you jump up and, you know, spin around and yell Yahtzee. At least it was in our house. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the first game uh, that I remember playing as, as a, a younger kid. And, and as I grew up, um, you know, we'd always play games with, with everybody in the neighborhood or make up games of our own outside and we're playing. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, it wasn't until after college, um, that a friend of mine introduced me to, uh, Settlers of Catan or Catan. I, I don't know how to pronounce it these I, days. I wouldn't worry about it. I think it's just a game. <laughs> I wonder if they've actually, um, apparently they've now got a real major problem flying in copies of uh, Settlers of Catan it's become a bit of a widespread kind of issue with them um, actually dealing on street corners now to people just out of college so so that that was kind of that was kind of how I got got uh, uh, introduced to that a, a friend of mine said hey let's play this game and I thought okay we're on an island we're making houses this, this doesn't <laughs> look that exciting to me and then I played it and it it blew my mind right it was everybody was involved and and no one got eliminated and you had strategy and you had yeah. negotiation which I love with the with the trading of the resources and so that kind of uh re revitalized my uh love of games uh, at a, at a later age and I, I happened to be living in, in Indianapolis, Indiana at the time. Yeah. And okay. Gen Con is in uh, Indianapolis. So I went to to Gen Con that year. And um, just the floodgates opened. I mean, you, you hit that exhibition hall floor and there's Catan. And then there's all sorts of other games uh, from any theme, any, any type of mechanics, uh, any type of complexity that you you know, you're looking for. Um, and, and I was really bit hard by the bug, you know, that's, that's where you get in and your, your collection starts growing like crazy. Like we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, and experiencing all these new games. And, yeah. and then, um, you know, the following Gen Con, um, I was, I was working for Panda. So, wow. so yeah, so it was, it was kind of the, the love of games have always been there. Yeah. Um, but then it came back to me a little bit later in life and it has turned into a, uh, a really enjoyable, fulfilling career. Did you kind of swear to yourself? Was it kind of like a movie thing where you kind of walked out with your car now full of games and went, next year, I'm going to be working for the industry. And then kind of music played and that was it. And then you kind of went out and got a job. I, I, I wish it was as cinematic and, and clear as, <laughs> as, as you laid it out there. Um, I, I think it was a more gradual type thing I, I started getting into the hobby playing those games i had that big haul yeah. that i came back from gen con and and um you know i, I wanted to be a media creator uh like like you at first i was i was writing blog posts and i was mm. writing reviews on board game geek and and um you know that was the way that i wanted to be involved with the industry um did you have a, just did you have a special name then did you did i you didn't have, what did you no. call yourself brent kenny I figured that was a name my mom gave me. I should probably stick with it. <laughs> so you didn't have call yourself like um, I don't know the the first time Meeple or yeah, I wasn't like like the Flying Meeple Brothers or you know. 
diced out. All, all, all the happy meeples or whatever, <laughs> whatever it may be. Um, I, I think when I had my board, it was Brent's board blog because oh, right. alliteration is awesome, right? It's key, yeah. 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 So, so, <laughs> uh, um, so it became very clear to me early on that maybe I didn't quite have the creativity to, to cut it as a, as a content creator, as a media creator. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, being that I was on board Game Geek quite a bit, uh, one day I saw that, that Panda Games Manufacturing had posted a, a job listing for an account manager position. Um, yeah. And I'd, I'd been familiar with Panda from some Kickstarter games that I'd backed uh, in the past. And I looked at that, that job listing and, and um, you know, I went down the list. I said, well, I can do that. I can do that. I do that in my job right now. I, I think I'd be a good fit. I'm, I'm going to apply for this. Yeah. And, um, you know, after a, a long interview process, uh, they brought me on and, and five years later, here we are. Do you still have some of the games that you picked up in Gen Con? I mean, do you still have the copy of Catan or was there, I mean, was, was it a huge haul that you picked up that year? So, um, <laughs> actually I was so overwhelmed in that first year. So yeah. I, I misspoke a little. I said I left with a big haul. I actually didn't buy anything that first year. I was just so overwhelmed that everything was there that um, <laughs> that I didn't know what to choose. Right, and 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 being the yeah the gamer, you know, it's like well, I should probably do my research, do some reviews on looking looking some reviews on this and see what I want. Yeah. So. I had nothing that came out of that, but then you know the the Amazon cart shortly thereafter was was pretty pretty full up. I I remember um, the 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 main game that we played there that we really enjoyed was Smash Up. They just debuted Smash Up for wow. AEG, and I mean now you know there's like eighteen different expansions for Smash Up, but that was the first year it came out, yeah. and um, that wasn't one I wanted bad. But we went on Sunday and it was already sold out, so. That was the first one I picked up um, when it became available in, in stores. That was the one that stuck with me on that first one. And they're doing a big box one of that now, isn't there? I've, I've seen yeah. like they're doing like a Gloomhaven <laughs> sized yeah. kind of box kind of thing. That you you got to have a suitcase for all the expansions on that. Yeah, you can lose a small, you know, a small animal in the box. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, I mean, you started the content creating, you went to kind of you started at panda i mean what okay so what what kind of attracted you there in the first place i mean it was the i mean was it just was the content creation creation kind of like well i can stick with this and see where i can go or were you did you instantly see well actually i can do this but i can do this from a kind of a job job kind of perspective yeah i mean looking back on it it, it feels like a lot of um happenstance or some people would say fate i would say fate um that yeah. things came together they the way that they did um you know i initially looked at being a content creator a blogger because i i had a background in in journalism and, and an interest in in writing and and um creating in that way um but then you know as as time went on that the opportunity showed itself and i was looking to to change uh, careers at that time. I was in finance before. Okay. Um, and, um, so it just, it just all kind of, kind of came together in a, in a great way that it's hard for me to put, put words on it really. 
I mean, are you are you getting time at the moment to kind of play any games? Just now, are you? I mean, I take it. Are you encouraged to kind of play games to find out kind of, um, kind of what else is out there? And I mean, is there anything you're kind of enjoying at the moment that you're getting to the table? Yeah. So, um, what I'm playing right now that I'm really enjoying is uh, Charterstone from oh, okay. from Stonemaier yeah. Games. Yeah. Um, and so that has the, like the legacy elements where you're, you're playing through it and unlocking different things. And I don't think I can say much more. We, we drift into spoiler territory. Um, but I'm playing through a campaign of that with my wife, uh, just her and I, um, and, uh, it actually plays very, very well with two players. Um, and it's quick. We can get a, get a game in and, and in 45 minutes to an hour, um, and just the unlocking all the new stuff is is really a, a great hook in that one. So, so that one I'm enjoying quite a bit right now. Um, also, um, myself and a lot of the people on the Panda team uh, over the last few few conventions we've been able to get together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been playing Star Wars Destiny. We've kind oh of yeah caught yeah. the the bug a little bit for that one. Um, so that's a system that I'm really really enjoying and getting into right now. Um, but there's there's never enough time to play all the games I want to. I guess that's that's one of the drawbacks of of working and in, in making games. You're making so many games, you're not playing as many as you'd you'd like to. Um, mm-hmm. Especially, you know, we talk about going to Gen Con. That first Gen Con I went to was awesome because I got to try out all the games. And and now when I go to Gen Con, it's it's all business, right? If I get if I get one game to the table, yeah. uh, or two games, it's it's a banner Gen Con because we're just you know, in and out of meetings and, and seeing clients and checking yeah. out all the new stuff that's going on. So um, I, I'm sure a lot of gamers can can uh, identify with that, that there's, you know, too many games and not enough time. So I'm still trying to figure out figure out a way to add a few hours to the day so I can uh, have, have game time every day. Yeah. I mean, um, being involved in what you're involved in, when you're looking at a game, Say like Charterstone or just you know any game you know like Destiny. Do you actually look at that and from a kind of a almost like a work business type of view and says, oh, you know, I would have done slightly thicker cards there, or yeah, I like the the way I like the way of these dice, or does it? I mean, does it give you ideas? Do you become? Do you have to sometimes have to kind of like separate the work Brent from the gamer Brent just to make sure you're enjoying a game and not kind of taking it apart a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I always say that the first five minutes that I open up a game and get it set up, I'm I'm work Brent. You know, yeah. I'm looking at I'm looking at the materials. I'm looking at how the art was done. I'm looking at what components were used and why. Um, and then as soon as the the rules are read and we're in the game, I'm playing the game and I'm I'm just in it for for fun and doing it. But but yeah, my 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 lens of viewing games now is. You know, that first impression, the first time that we're going through it, I'm, I'm like, okay, what, what'd they do here? Oh, this would be an interesting, <laughs> interesting choice for the component. Oh, I like that. That might be something that we could recommend to clients that are doing something similar to this. So, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's really a neat thing that I can, I can dovetail, you know, uh, do a little, little professional research while I'm, I'm enjoying myself and, and, and playing a game and, and enjoying company of friends. Yeah, well, that's cool. That's cool. No, um, is there any ones that have kind of any games recently that have really kind of st- stood out for you from from the components side of things? I mean, there seems to be we're in a golden age at the moment. 
you know, there seems to be just the as you said yourself, there's so many games out there, and there's not necessarily an awful lot of time out there. But have you seen anything recently that you've, you know, your little years have pricked up and went, "Wow, well, I've got to, I've got to get myself a little physical copy of this just to have a kind of a look through it and see what they're doing with it." That's the thing is we have such a, a just just a wealth of spoils right now as far as uh, component quality goes in games and. I would say that it's more often, I mean, it's less often that I open a game and say, oh, this is, this is not very impressive or, oh, this, this could have been done better or, yeah. uh, this is, this is not quite up to, to snuff, um, rather than just being extremely blown away by, by a single title or a single component like that. It's, it's usually, you know, the, the bar has been raised across the, the board and the, uh, in the industry that we're in. Um, <clears throat> that, you know, everybody has stepped their game up and, and knows that those appearances matter, you know, and, and in some ways the, that, um, you know, you've got to, you got to have a certain amount of polish and, and flash to that game or it's going to be, uh, lost in the, the, the masses of games that come out. I mean, what was the, the release number for Essen last year? 800, 900 <laughs> new titles. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'll say I, there's, there's sticker cards in Charterstone that I'm, I'm just in love with. I'm, I'm I've racking seen my brain to think of other games, how they could use that and, and utilize that. That's something that's really, really cool and neat. Um, a lot of games that I'm playing lately have metal coins and that's just the tactile nature of clanking around coins and trading and stuff. It makes it, makes it feel more real, you know? So those, mm. I think those are my favorite things that, that I've been seeing lately is, is metal coins and sticker cards. Well, but in fairness, I mean, I had, um, I took in dinosaur Island recently and, uh, that box had lots of metal coins and I am now ripped from yeah. lifting up multiple times. Yeah, oh my goodness. Nate and Molly over at Pandasaurus, they they pack those games to the brim with, with cool stuff. They're always doing really cool cool things. So yeah, just, that's just, Dinosaur Island is is an awesome one and, and like you said, you get a get an extra bonus of getting a few a few bicep curls in, just exactly. taking it off the shelf and putting it back on there. Exactly. That's it. You can't get something coming up you know Somebody coming up to you goes, you just sit inside playing board games. I was like, yeah, but, you know, have you seen my tickets to the gun show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I recently had to, to rearrange my uh, game room so that all the heavy games were on the lower shelves because it was, oh. it was getting to be a, a little bit of a, a strain to, to reach up and bring those down. I mean, I mean, how many games have you got, would you say? Um, I would say it's in the 250, 300 range. So just, you know, bit of a middle of the road then. Decent. Yeah. Decent. I mean, to, I, I tell, I, I tell my friends that aren't, you know, into games about that and they're, they're just, they're just floored. They're like, how, how is there that many games? And then. I talk with people at conventions. And they're like, "Oh, that's cute. I have yeah. 1,200." You know, <laughs> so so well, I think <laughs> that that's a number that I like to to. I think I want to keep it around. Like beyond yeah. beyond that might be too much to handle. I'm just running out of 
wall space, honestly. So that's that's the limiting factor. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things about manufacturing, um, well, no, one of the things, first of all, is games seem to be going up in price. Um, is it getting more expensive to produce a game, do you think? Or because of the tidying with the components, the just the cost of resources themselves? I mean, from your point of view... Um, from you being in this business for the length of time that you have been in, has have you seen a kind of an increase in a base and a base cost of a game kind of increase, um, you know, because of a co- you know world economies and stuff like that? Has it kind of risen over the last couple of years, as far as you can see? Yes and no. I mean, I think uh, in in general you have currency fluctuations, you have material fluctuations over time that that um can influence uh, how much a game costs and you know a long time ago there was there was hero quest right and and they did hero quest and it was awesome and and then it went away because plastic got so expensive and so plastic intensive so you you see things that ebb and flow like that um i think the biggest thing as far as you know prices increasing in board games is just what we were talking about earlier with all the all the new components and all the cool stuff. Like there's so much more in a board game box now than there was in the past, you know, and and older games, it might be a few dice and a board and cards and that's it. And now we've got, you know, metal coins and plastic miniatures and, and, um, you know, 3d constructible cardboard items and tiles and, and all sorts of bits in the, in the box. Um, and you know, with more stuff in the box, the, the price increases along with it. So I think along with what we were talking about of the, the appearances matter and everybody wants to step their game up and, and do something cool and unique and different. And, Mm -hmm. and to do that, you know, sometimes it costs a little bit, a little bit more to, to put that, that pizzazz in, inside that box. Okay. Okay. Um, has your... With the number, I mean, with Kickstarter, I mean, obviously, when you started, Kickstarter probably wasn't a, as maybe as big as a thing as it as it is now. Um, has your are you finding that you're getting a lot more people kind of chapping on the door with regards to asking and requesting kind of manufacturing quotes and stuff like that? Because there seems to be at any one time there seems to be about a good couple of three or four hundred projects on the go on kind of like Kickstarter. Um, have you found that? I mean, with Kickstarter becoming so more and more popular, are you finding it more easier to kind of get people coming in requesting quotes? Or are you still having to go out and fight the fight the sales fight kind of every day? Uh, we've been very fortunate in that regard. In that we do have a lot of a lot of business that that comes to us, that comes to our door, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, we have a, a quote form that's set up on our our website, mm-hmm. um, and. If someone wants to get a quote for the game that they're they're designing, uh, they'll just go on our website, sign up, and uh, provide some just basic information to to have an account on the the website, and they have access to our quote form. That's a series of drop down boxes that lets you choose what's in the game. So you can choose the size of your box, you can choose the cards, the all the bits that that would be inside of that that game. Uh, and then they submit the form to us and it goes to, to our sales team. And then they'll reach out and work with that, that designer to, to quote their game. Okay. So we've, 
Uh, we've always had that quote form in, in one shape or form as part of the business. Yeah. Um, when I started uh, years ago, we, we actually just had a, it was an email inbox that people would email. Um, <laughs> okay. and, and there was no semblance of order, right? Some people wow. would send really great specs in an Excel spreadsheet and others would just say, hey, how much does it cost for me to make Monopoly? <laughs> um, and do you so, still get do you still get that do you still get we, the we still do get a do little, get a little bit say, of that i'll tell you what it is yeah it's like monopoly but it's got fish fish <laughs> tell tell me more tell fish. me more. i'm interested different streets <laughs> except the board is circular so it's like a fishbowl <laughs> You you bound to get that. You bound to. I mean, there must be a collection of the kind of the the Panda Games manufacturing kind of best requests for quotes, and there must be some people that. What did I see recently? Did you see the thing on Kickstarter about the guy that was <laughs> wanting to make, um, Harry Potter Monopoly? Did you no, see? I didn't. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I'm guessing he probably didn't have the license though. <laughs> he was. He was using the. He kind of said uh, he was kind of using the kind of the old. Um, it's kind of based around, inspired by kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And folk were kind, may it's Monopoly. Well, it's not. It's inspired by Monopoly. He's like, no, that's definitely Monopoly. You've still got the two card spaces in the middle, and and that's Harry Potter. He says, no, it's inspired by Harry Potter. <laughs> it's like. It's Mate, a different taken... boy wizard, yeah. Sure. <laughs> you've, just, you've taken stills from the film. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't <laughs> see that. The... I think he, I think he managed about two days before it was like. Unfortunately, the funding got cancelled. But you know, bless him for <laughs> saying, "I'm going to take two, two of the largest IPs known to man, and try and make my own game and try and fudge kind of getting through." But <laughs> so, so yeah, the. The quote form we get a lot of a lot of incoming business uh, yeah. from that, and and um, that's that's kind of the main main pipeline, the main way that, that people reach out to, to us mm-hmm. um, initially, and then we work through that, and you know if they they hop on, we make a game for them, then they're they're paired with a, an account manager that they work with and handles their business, and and then they're part of you know the panda panda family moving okay. forward. So. Okay. Um, do you have, I mean, if I, if, say I've got, you're right, I've got my game idea, okay. Yep. Um, do you have like minimum levels and things like that? Because obviously one of the things about Kickstarter is is people have kind of like an idea of a minimum level. Are you, I mean, do you kind of discuss levels? Does, does, okay, does the manufacturing process have to be quite fluid? Because obviously you get games like say, well, if you take Scythe, which is one of the games that, you know, you were, you guys were involved in. Was, do you get an idea of the potential stretch goals for like a Kickstarter campaign when it starts out? Or is that something that you kind of discuss as you're going through the kind of the manufacturing kind of processes? When the when the Kickstarter creator kind of gets assigned their account manager, do they generally have knowledge of potential stretch goals? Or does, does that depend on the individual client that you're kind of working with? Uh, it depends. It depends on the client, but in in general, we always encourage people to have their stretch goals, have their ideas laid out um, early on. You know, obviously before before you get on Kickstarter is is yeah. a good time to have those those things figured out, um, and that's what our account managers do to 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 help those those project creators and those designers to to lay out their their stretch goals. 
Okay. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of the one, the one tie that binds us all at Panda as far as our account managers and our project managers go. Yeah. We've all come from different, different backgrounds. So I used to be in finance. We have a guy that used to, that has a, that has a theology background. We have people that came from consulting, graphic yeah. design, you know, museum creator, all, all sorts of different backgrounds. But the, the tie that binds us is we're all, we're all gamers and we're all passionate yeah. about the hobby. So when we work with our clients, we're looking at those, their projects from a gamer perspective. And, you know, what would someone want to see and pl- want to play with when they open that box? So, uh, in a perfect world, we have that designer reach out to us, say like, Hey, here's the, here's the base game that I'm looking at. This is bare bones. If I'm at a minimum, minimum funding level, this is what's going to be in the box. And then we talk with them. We say, all right, well, what's your, what's your Cadillac version? What's, yeah. what's the pie in the sky? And so they'll consult with, with our account managers. The account managers might give a few, um, tips, a few suggestions as far as what they can do to, to bling out the game or add more content or whatever it is. And then they'll, it'll be a collaborative process where they're working through those things and they'll have a couple different levels of quotes, um, made out. So they'll know where those, those funding levels are and, and, uh, help set up where that campaign's gonna, gonna go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in terms of stretch goals, is it, um, is there encouragement to do things like you know, make more cards for the game as opposed to saying okay, so you you've been talking min- miniatures, so let's kind of spec out miniatures instead. I mean, is that I take it there's easy wins that just involve adding an extra couple of cards to a sheet and then some design time as opposed to kind of like tooling kind of miniatures. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Richard. There's you know there's there's kind of like you said the easy win. Uh, stretch goals where it's, you know, maybe adding a box sleeve as a Kickstarter exclusive yeah. or, or, um, metallic ink or gold foil to the box type yeah. thing or add a few cards here all the way up to, all right, you've got cardboard standees for the game. Let's, let's talk miniatures. Like what would it take to get over that threshold and, and do plastic miniatures? So it, it varies on what type of game that you're making. You know, if you're making just a card game, then your stretch goals are probably going to be additional cards, additional expansions, things yeah, like that. Yeah, if yeah. it's, if it's a worker placement game with, with meeples and, and wood, maybe your upgrade is going from plain, you know, carcassonne type shaped meeples. And you can't see me on the camera, but I'm, I'm standing like I'm a meeple here with my, my arms out. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I pay good. I pay good money for that. No, no, no Brent, um, show, to, show me to, angry. Show me, a, angry. Show me angry. To a, to, I could never be angry at you, Richard. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> to a, you know, a custom shaped a meeple that would look like a, a pirate or a adventurer or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of different there's a lot of different paths that, that can can be taken, and that's. That's kind of the biggest biggest thing that we focus on is that you know our account managers and project managers are gonna gonna work with them to to figure out how to present that game in its best form and yeah. and and put a really great really great title on the shelf for that that designer. Is it like um is it like an arms race amongst you guys and the other manufacturers kind of out there? I mean, is it a case that um you know you mentioned kind of custom meeples now for the longest time I would never you would see meeples in different colours or meeples with stickers 
But now, in a, in, in, I must say, in a, in a fair number of games that I've seen recently that have come through Kickstarter, they have got the like the custom shaped kind of meeple. So, you do you guys have to be aware of kind of like the the latest technology that's out there? Do you have kind of things that you're constantly developing that you try with certain clients or make suggestions to to see if that's something that's kind of like you know popular? Kind of. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we always want to try to stay in the in front of the trends and on the cutting edge as far as what things are going in games and what we can offer to our clients. And, and you know, in regards to that, it's, it's kind of a two, two-way street. Sometimes we will, you know, be at a convention and see a certain game or talk with another manufacturer or publisher and see what they're doing and mm-hmm. say, oh, well, you know, that's really cool. What it, you know, let's see if we can do that or, or see if we can do something that's a little bit different than, than that. Or, um, you know, so sometimes we'll reach out to our production team and say mm-hmm. let's let's try to make you know a a plastic miniature that does black backflips automatically or something i just yeah, no, no, spitballing no. at this point something crazy right yeah. um and then other times it's it's our publisher clients will come to us and say hey i've got this crazy idea for a game it really centers around this this weird component what can we do and then you know they'll they'll push that innovation too so we're always trying to move forward and um, come up with innovative things to put in the box, but also, you know, you've talked to all these brilliant game designers on your podcast, and their brains are going ninety miles an hour, coming with a, up with all sorts of ideas. So, you know, we we'll, we we uh, leverage that, and we we work with their ideas too to to come up with new stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I've seen. Um is the kind of the game trays kind of set up. That seems to be quite a popular thing. I think people are want to play or would like to play big complicated games, but they don't necessarily want to spend kind of the first hour kind of setting everything up kind of thing, or they want to make sure that everything's kind of put away kind of nicely as well. Which I think I've seen you know, I've seen a few guys kind of almost offering it as kind of as kind of like stretch goals. Um, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. We, you were talking about Pandasaurus earlier. They did that yeah. with with um, Wasteland Express. Yes, uh, they had did. A, the whole the whole nesting trays and and game yeah. trays did the the entire design. And they they work with game trays to to come up with the design and work with us to to uh, make sure everything fit. And then you know we we mass produced all those trays for the the games and yeah, it, it makes that game. I mean, that game's awesome in the first place, but it makes it such a joy to to get out of the box because you just after you set it up once you take out the trays and you're you're ready to rock so yeah so have yeah that's play- definitely a, a big one right now have you managed have you played it yourself i have i have i was i played it for the first time just last week there i was um i was impressed <laughs> I did. I must admit, I did go brrr when I was moving the trucks around. But oh, I you still, have to. I, I mean, that's that isn't that isn't the rule book. I'm pretty sure it's paid. I think I think it is on on the rule book. I, I I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, you know Matt and Ben um, when they did the design, that's that was one of the stipulations there. So, and and Jonathan too <laughs> on the designs. There's the three of them. But when I mean when you're sitting down and you're you know you're playing a game that you know your company's been part of is that is that like the, one of the coolest things? It's like it's not like you're making, you know, mock mock buckets for people that are still very very important, 
but you can't sit with a mop bucket on your table and play it. But is it quite cool to be kind of playing a game? You're saying, well, actually, we we were very much involved in making sure this product got to the table. Is that still kind of like a cool, exciting thing that thrills you at the moment or still kind of thrills you at the moment, yeah? Oh yeah, it's it's still the biggest high, you know, playing a game that you've you've gotten to to help someone make or going to the store and seeing a, a game that that you've been involved with on the the store shelf. It might just be me because I came from a finance background where the things that we were selling were not tangible, right? I can't touch a mutual fund. I can't <laughs> I can't touch my stock portfolio. No. Um, but, but I can play a board game and I can, I can go to target and see, see all the board games that are set up and see the ones that are, that we, we were involved with. So, uh, yeah, that's, that is still a really big high and, and something that's exciting and, and to know kind of the, the backstory behind those games too. Some of my favorite memories of working with Panda are, you know, when a client will show me just their prototype, their index cards marked up with markers and, yeah. and, you know, sleeved magic cards that are, that are prototyped and, and we play the game and, and seeing it in that form and then working with them through the quote and then working through the, the production and seeing the final art and then getting it all the way to the end. Like that's one thing that's lost on people that aren't in the hobby is that, there's so many hands and there's so many minds that are involved with making one game that you see on the shelf. You know, you see a game on the shelf for $40, you don't really think much of it, but okay. there's been a designer that's, you know, been designing it for years. And then there's been uh, the publisher who's working on art and the artist that puts together the art and manufacturer that, that gets all the pieces together. And, you know, there's just so many steps that it takes to get there. It's, it's really satisfying to see that final product. Is there any um, is there any myths that you want to dispel about the manufacturing process? Because you are, you're the quiet partner in all this. I mean, when I was speaking to Nigel at GamesQuest, you know, we had the conversation where you go on to like say the Kickstarter, you know, the Kickstarter page, and uh, then there'll be the comments about what's happening with the game, and then people will comment about kind of like delivery, but you guys. Are sitting there watching the Kickstarter kind of un, you know, kind of come to fruition and everything like that, and you don't really have a kind of a voice to say, well, actually, we, you know, we couldn't do this because it would have meant the box had to be an extra three inches high, which meant that in no way we would have been able to basically wrap it in cellophane, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I mean, is it? Do you do you? I guess, do you guys kind of keep an eye or are you quite involved in the Kickstarter community? I mean, do you guys actively go in and keep an eye on projects, even kind of back projects to, I guess, kind of keep an eye on how things are progressing through the campaign as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, especially with, with games that we're making, right? We'll always yeah. keep an eye on the um, on the campaign and see, you know, see what the, the public temperature is on on different things and what kind of comments and updates are coming out from uh the publisher so we can you know see how the 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 public reaction is to stuff but our our main focus is still staying in that background right and and just making a great product and and working with that that publisher to to bring their best vision of that that product out and you know i don't 
I don't envy those creators for having to, to run a Kickstarter. I, I love the, uh, I love the idea of opening up my email and I just see that money is coming in with the pledges during the, the pledge part. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but then, you know, doing the updates and, and, and dealing with the, you know, usually very, very small population that's very vocal and, and opinionated, um, mm-hmm. can be, I'd, I'd imagine would be very, very stressful and and a lot to to handle so you know we do our best to to support the 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 publisher try to get them the information uh Mm -hmm. that they need for their their updates and their their backers and and stick to a a schedule that we that works for everybody and and just um you know we we don't mind being the stage crew we don't mind being behind the scenes um because that's that's where we really thrive and that's where we really uh, can put in good work for for our customers. See the guys that are kind of carrying about the amplifiers and the guitars and stuff like that. And yeah, I guess we'd be the the, the roadies, you know. If <laughs> if, if the publishers are the rock stars and they truly are rock stars, we we yeah. are the the roadies that that bring in the equipment and and make sure everything sounds good. Yeah, is there? I mean, is there anything that um, people assume about the process? As I said, that you you know you'd you'd like no. I wish people actually kind of knew. I mean, let's see. Like, okay, let's look at time skills because one of the things that um, I guess that that comes up is, you know, I mean, does it really take kind of eight nine months, potentially a year, to put a game together, or is this down to how successful a game is? Because I think one of the things I see is um, you kind of want a game to fund because if a game just funds, then usually it's like, yep, we're bang on time. If a game goes into stretch goal territory, it can sometimes just expand things out especially if you're having to kind of tool additional components and stuff like that so i mean if somebody was i guess the re- the reverse of the question is if somebody was coming to you and was getting looking at getting something kind of manufactured what's a kind of a normal you know say a normal kind of um a normal kind of reasonable size box game like um say like scythe a couple you know a couple of miniatures some cardboard some cards i don't know if scythe is a reasonable <laughs> type of, of project there's a lot Listen, going on in that one but Brent, have you seen have you i don't know have you seen have you seen max versus minions i i, I have seen that okay now that one is <laughs> yeah is probably the the higher end of the scale so that's a good point uh, and there's yeah. also giant killer robots as well yeah I mean, that's that's I think so, they, had to, they had to change the size of the box for that game, apparently, because they couldn't put it through the cellophane wrapping machine. Yeah, the, <laughs> the robots were too giant. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you bring up timescales, because that would be the, the biggest thing that I would say yeah. there's misconceptions or um, wrong ideas about. And I, I think it's, first and foremost, as humans, we are very bad with time. We are bad at judging how long things can take, um, comprehending how long things take. Just time's a tough, a tough yeah. construct in general. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing is, is uh, a lot of people don't realize how much time it takes to, to, to make a game. And, and that there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, parties involved there. Right. So when we when we make a game, you know, we we get files from our client and we've got to check those files to see if um, they're set up in the right format that we can print them on our machines. 
Yeah. And if they're not, then we have to kick them back and they have to make adjustments and go back and forth. And, and that can be an iterative process. So, you know, like you were saying earlier, does a game take eight or nine months or can it take a few weeks? It, you know, it depends on, again, are we making teach you? Are we making a, a card game or are we making mechs versus minions? Yeah. And yeah. is that, is that, um, publisher or designer a first time publisher or designer where this is the first time that they're going through this and you know maybe they don't have their own graphic designer maybe they don't have their art files in order or is this a established one where it's not their first rodeo and they've they've got everything going so the time scales shift based on that and based on um what is in that box and you know are the biggest thing that we we try to stress with our with our clients is to, to talk with us early so we can sit down, we can see what their expectations are as far as when they want to release that game, um, what's going to, to happen with it, and then we can work backwards uh, with our production facility and see you know, just when you know, we'll need to have those files updated, we'll need to have those samples approved to keep, to keep that timeline. So that's, that's a big consideration in the, in the project management, uh, process is, is what those deadlines are and, and uh, what we need to hit and then making sure that everybody, ourselves, the publishers, the, the graphic designers, the creatives included are, are in on that, that schedule and, and, um, working towards it actively. So there's quite a big team allocated to kind of every project and it's not just a case of here's your project manager he'll be the guy that will be sending the files. You could get um, kind of other people involved just to make sure everything's kind of ticking over. Um, do you say you've got in-house, a couple of in-house kind of designers as well, the people that could help with files and correcting stuff? So we have a, we have a pre-press team, and the, the pre-press yeah. team, uh, their, their main focus is checking those files and making sure that they are they're able to be printed on our machines and that they're they're set to to our standards and we have a a really great file design guidebook that uh, i'm contractually obligated to talk about anytime that i'm in public from our pre-press manager adam he would um he would get very angry at me if i didn't bring it up because this makes their job much easier is if whoever's working through the files whoever uh, is the graphic designer for the project. They look at that file design guidebook. It's available on our website too um, because it has those words to the wise and those guidelines ahead of time. And if they're using those guidelines ahead of time, there's probably only a few small um, things that the pre-press team needs to adjust to get those things ready. So our, our pre-press team uh, won't actively go in and change files, but they go in and check um, that everything's formatted the right way and, you know, they're in CMYK color and the margins and the bleeds are okay. And yeah, if yeah. they'll run a whole pre-press report looking through all the files and then send it back oh. to the, the client and say, all right, this looks great. Your boards look great. The cards, you're flirting with the margins a little bit. We need to move that out. Yeah. Um, and then their graphic designer will make those adjustments and resubmit it. So, okay. so yeah, so there's a, there's a pre-press lead that is helping on each project along with a project manager who is doing what the, the title sounds like, right? They're managing that entire project and, mm-hmm. and making sure everybody's on the same page. And then they interface with our, our production facility, um, over in Shenzhen and, and our team there to coordinate getting the samples and, 
and working up those those things and moving it through the the process so so yeah it's even though the project manager is your main point of contact um there's a whole team that's working working even further in the background to to make those things happen so do you um do you send out like production blanks as well? Because I've seen sometimes photographs of that, and somebody says, "Look what it's arrived," and I was like, "Yeah, let's see." And they just put pictures out, and it's just their game, but completely white. It's like, who who nicked your ink? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So our our production process in in broad strokes is that um, the client will submit their their design files to us, and their their files for their their samples, whether it's dice or wood, meeples, whatever it may be. Yeah. And then the pre-press team will check those files. And once those all look good, we'll upload what's called a, a digital proof. And the digital proof is just their files that they can look at on the computer to check to make sure everything looks, looks good. And then once that digital proof is approved, we will make uh, one copy of the game, basically a print-on-demand copy for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and we call that the PPC, pre-production copy. Okay. And so that PPC is basically the white copy that you're talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. A few years ago, we would send that blank copy that's all the materials, but it's just white. And then we'd send printed out flat sheets of all the artwork. And then we would send one other white copy with um, actually just just like laser printed paper pasted up on the white copy so you could see where everything lined up. Yeah, and yeah. That, was, that was the production proof that they would check. Yeah. Now our technology has, has uh, progressed in a way that we, we do this PPC copy that everything is, it just looks like the game. So there's not the white copy and then the flat things. It's just one, one game that you're looking at and you're improving and, and you can see all the art printed directly on it. So, so yes. So yeah, that's, that's a big part of the process. And that's kind of the point of no return at the, at the PPC stage. Uh, once everything is approved there and the client looks at it and they say, everything looks good, then we'll make the printing plates. Then we'll order the final components. Then we will, Mm -hmm. you know, start making all of the games. So at that point, um, once it's approved, any changes that would ha- were to happen after that would be very costly from a time standpoint and from a money standpoint. So that that PPC stage is so important um, that the project manager gets on a Skype call with the client. They go through the PPC together to make sure everything's in order before we, you know, make fifteen hundred, three thousand, five thousand uh, copies of that of that game. And then once those that mass production is finished. The first one that comes off the the line, we will send to the client, and we call that the mass production copy or the MPC. Um, and that's a really exciting part. I mean, at that point, we've been through all the labor pains. It's it's time to see the baby. So you know, they they uh, get that MPC and they they check it out, and it's it's another call that they have with their project manager, and it's it's a spot check at this point, right? Because everything's being made, and we're just waiting to assemble it, but. Um, we always do a check there just in case there was something that was overlooked by the, the publisher. Maybe they forgot to put in uh, a rule in the rules book. So, yeah. you know, we could print out one card that has that rule and add it to the games. While we have all 5,000 in our factory, it'd be a lot easier than if they were to be sent over and then they'd have to deal with it. So it's one last check to make sure those look good. And mm-hmm. then... Um, we will execute the the shipping plan that they give us, um, whether it's going to a distributor or or their garage or 
wherever they want to have the game sent uh, will help help get them sent there. So in very broad strokes, that's kind of the, the life cycle of a, of a game through the, the project management process. Do you then have to take into account like the length of time it will take for components as well then? Because obviously tooling a set of miniatures is going to take, you know, three, four months, whereas preparing kind of like a file for... 117 cards or 156 cards is going to take an awful lot less time. So when the project managers are putting together the total delivery time on the project, do they generally have to look at the file that is going to take or the part of the production that's going to take the longest and and, and kind of factor in factor that in? And Absolutely. Kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah, and the um you know those items that do take longer, custom dice, plastics and things like that. Yeah. We always strive to get those samples going and and working on those early in the process so we can sync that up with the rest of the the things that are printing because obviously the the printing of the the printed components take a lot less than making an entire mold for plastic miniatures you know making a making a mold for plastic miniatures might take a month in and of itself and that's that doesn't include the production right Mm -hmm. so we want to be talking about those pieces uh, even even earlier, um, and so we can sync those those things up for the the final deadline. So you're absolutely on the ball on that one. So when you, I mean, when you are doing things like miniatures, um, I mean, is that still the costliest process to go through? I mean, if somebody, I mean, they always say when somebody's adding miniatures into a project, that really kind of bumps the the, the kind of the price up. Um, is that still as costly to kind of produce, or is 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 there been a way is the cost kind of reduced to that? I mean, would you guys? I take it, say for instance, three D printing just isn't up to the standard yet that you need for decent miniatures. So you still have to do the kind of the traditional kind of mold mold variations at the moment. Yeah, we have to do molding. Three D printing is an amazing amazing technology. It's just yeah. for for large quantities. It's it's too it's too slow and it's too pricey, right? Okay. So, so yeah, molding is still the the way to go, and and um, you know, um, the one of the biggest costs that's involved with the molding is is the mold itself. You know, the, these molds for the plastic figures, depending on how how complex they are, um, could be in the tens of thousands of dollars fixed cost. Whether you're making one one miniature, you're making ten thousand of them. So, Mm -hmm. so that's, you know, that's a big consideration when it comes to plastic. We, you know, we kind of have a a, a rule of thumb that if, if someone's looking at, at, um, doing plastic for their game, custom plastic pieces that, uh, they should probably be looking at a minimum order quantity of, of at least 3000 games to, to make it worthwhile, um, for, for what they're going to have to, to pay out for a, a mold cost. Okay. And that, I mean, that obviously takes you then into economy of scale. Because, I mean, when I mean, Jamie Stegmaier was on, um, he talked about there's a point that you reach where you can't get any more discount for producing. You know, there's a jump. There's a point where, yeah, producing 10,000 copies is going to be the same price as producing 12,000 copies because you guys are hitting kind of like the base margin that you need in order to produce the, the kind of the items. Yeah, it's not a, a dead-on linear type scale. It's you know more of a more of a curve, and you'll get to the point, and 
uh, you know, J- Jamie prints quite a few games. So I, I think he's, he's touched that point, uh, a couple of times where, where your economies of scale just don't, um, they don't infinitely keep, keep reducing. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there games that unless you, I mean, you mentioned miniatures needing to have at least 3000. I mean, are there games that you would say, well, listen, you're going to have, do you have a kind of an internal thing where you say, right, guys, they've got to reach a minimum of a certain number of, of orders because otherwise it's going to be too costly to the creator to actually put the game out, you know? Yeah. um, That's largely up to the creator, right? It depends Mm. how much they want to make on, on the game. Well, our, our regular minimum order quantity, I don't know if I mentioned earlier is, is 1500 games. All right. Okay. Um, And, and we've set that up just because the way that our production facilities are set up, it, it makes the most sense making 1500 games or, or more, um, Mm -hmm. under that. And it's, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of effort and a lot of setup for, um, you know, a project that isn't going to be as, um, successful and, and profitable for both sides, right. For the, for the, the publisher and for us. Um, just because of the, the cost of, of doing a print run. So yeah. we've, we've landed on 1500 as our minimum order quantity and then, and then the guideline of 3000 for, for plastic miniatures. But again, you know, that's, that's not set in stone. If someone has a, a plastic miniatures game that they feel really, really, uh, confident about and they, you know, they funded well, but they only want to make 2500 games. Uh, yeah. We can do that because there's, you know, they feel like they'll come back for reprints and then they'll have the molds and and it'll it'll be worth their while over the life of that game to do it. So mm-hmm. it it just depends. Um, there's you, I'm sure you know that board games get marked up quite a bit from where they go from from us at the manufacturer to the publisher to the distributor to the the retailer um, to the end customer. You know, there's there were four or five jumps right there. So, um, a lot of it is, is just the, the publisher doing the math and realizing, um, you know, what's, what they have in the game, what they can charge for it. And if they feel comfortable with that margin, Um, you talked about mechs versus minions earlier. And, um, that's a, that's a game that, that everybody points to and says, wow, the price that they're selling it for compared to what's in the box how yes. how they're doing it what is you know what's the voodoo magic here and the big part for them is they've realized that they they can sell directly from their merch store and that's the way they want to do it yeah and and their their margin their multiple is not the same as something that would go through distribution that would go through retailers and and also you know riot games is one of the biggest if not the biggest uh, video game exactly. company in the, in the world. So again, the profit motive there maybe maybe isn't quite as high as someone who's just doing you know trying to get a a, a public uh, a publishing house off the ground. So it's it's different strokes for different folks. It it just it really depends on what the business plan is there. Do you, I mean, um, and I don't I'm not putting words in your mouth by any way, shape, or form, Brent, but. Do you think that's why the Kickstarter model is is kind of so very popular amongst kind of you know the argument being that you guys not you but there's certain publishers out there that make lots of money on Kickstarter and then maybe the model is because 
Kickstarter allows them to go straight from a manufacturing directly to the consumer and potentially miss out the kind of the the distribution and the kind of the the cost. Do you think that's you know is that maybe a reason why it's Kickstarter is still seeing a lot of big names kind of putting their stuff on on Kickstarter because it helps them to miss out potential kind of the distribution and stuff like that. Uh, I think Kickstarter is is still very strong, very popular for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah. You know what you had brought up there that that you can sell these directly and and there's a there's a better profit margin um, for for selling those games on the Kickstarter is is definitely one of them. But you know you alluded to maybe companies that um, they could self fund right. They wouldn't need to go on Kickstarter, but but having it on Kickstarter is do they just look at it as a, as a marketing uh, yeah. expense, right? Yeah, yeah. Whatever yeah. the cut is that goes to, to Kickstarter, it's marketing because it's a bigger platform. And yeah, my core fans are going to be there for that game, but maybe I find some more people that, that are uh, interested in this because they're tooling around on Kickstarter. Um, talking about the, the, the money factor there too is, is um, you know, I can go out on a limb and spend $20,000 of my own money and, and make a game and it might do well or it might not, or I can have a safety net and put it on Kickstarter and have somebody else fund it or a lot of somebody else's fund it and, yeah. and go from there. So getting that money up front and kind of taking the temperature of how your, your product is going to be received is another, another, um, positive that, and, and another reason why, why people use it. So I think it's, it's a lot of those things all all swirled together. Uh, why why Kickstarter is is popular and and you know the the board gaming space on Kickstarter, they've the board game creators have really innovated Kickstarter itself. Um, yeah, I believe yeah. the idea of a stretch goal came from you know board game board game. Yeah, projects, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting, I think, was quite recently a re- a very very well known kind of IP um, went from saying, oh, we're going to go from Kickstarter to, and we're just going to go to a pre-order system instead. And the backlash (laughs) that they got for not going on Kickstarter was quite surprising. It was the, um, as I say, it was the Harry Potter miniature game. And they moved from doing kind of like a kick, you know, they're saying, right, okay, I think it was two weeks before the Kickstarter campaign was going to go live, they went, oh, we're just going to do pre-orders to the website instead. And a lot of folks were going, what's wrong? What, what, why, 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 why? And it was asking kind of why, the why, why questions. And it's almost like being on Kickstarter and having yourself funded through there, even though Kickstarter say, listen, if anything goes wrong, it's on your own heads. Right. But that kind of still had a, a kind of a, a realm of kind of credibility to it. You know, it's still, Kickstarter still is a beautiful, kind of wonderful kind of behemoth which is doing really really well for everybody you know alike and allows you know businesses that are doing their um that are doing their card games to come to you with 1500 you know 1500 minimum order because they've got 1500 people that have decided to back the project for you and that project can then can then become kind of like a reality as well which is always kind of cool that's Um, that's the wonderful thing is you know there's so many ways to get a game out for for designers or for publishers you know the designer can put pitch it to a to a publisher and then the publisher will run with that and put it out or you know go through the regular retail channels or you can go to to kickstarter and and 
do it on your own. And I, I think that's, that's really a lot of the allure too, is as far as board game design goes and board gaming goes, the barriers to entry are very low, right? Like I, I love playing video games, but I can't code. I can't make my own video yeah. game. But if I want to make a board game, I can mock up some things on index cards and, and design a board game. So the, the barriers are very low for that. And now with Kickstarter, you know, the biggest hurdle is the money to, to be able to make that. And Kickstarter brought that barrier to entry down quite a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms, okay, here's a side question. The, I mean, one of the things that, um, I know I joke it's like print, you know, pressed and printed trees, but do you have to kind of be environmentally conscious as a manufacturer in terms of the environmental impact that you guys have as well? Is that something that you have to be kind of more aware of uh, in case anybody kind of asks kind of questions on policies and things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, our, our printing facilities are in, in Shenzhen, China. So they're, yeah. they're overseas. And um, recently, over the last couple of years, there have actually been even more environmental uh, regulations um, that, are, that have been raised over in China. So, um, you know, we've always been in a position where we're meeting or exceeding those, those environmental standards and, and have our, uh, certifications that, that show that, um, because it's, you know, it's something we want to be conscious of and, and be responsible with. Um, so, you know, just, just now there was a, a new regulation passed that for, for card stock, certain kind of card stock, yeah, um, I heard about this. Yeah, yeah, That's why it's I'm it's, the it's, question, it's yeah. made from you know recycled material um, from uh, actually from the U.S. and and China has come out and said, all right, we've upped this standard and all that recycled material that the U.S. was sending to China to make uh, for for um, cardstock, it's not of you know the grade that they want anymore. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so there's got to be changes that that are on that, and so it's something that we've we've always uh, stayed ahead of, and always want to be very uh, conscious of, and keeping our our certifications up, and you know, making sure that that we're uh, impacting the environment is is in in a small way as, as much as we uh, we can limit that is is a is what we want to do. Yeah, I mean, well, the same thing happened in the UK that China turned around and said, um, you know, all those plastic bottles you were sending us to landfill, um, we're not we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> so it kind of ended up with a massive change in... Po- I mean, you know, I mean, and let's face it, you're at the kind of the, the mercy of the, the Chinese government and what they decide to do to do next, which is always kind of kind of interesting. Brent, have you ever thought about designing a game then? I've thought about it a lot, um, but I, I've never, I've never done it. Um, I, with the number of games I play and the number of games that I'm around, I feel like I should, um, and I feel like it's always on my New Year's resolution list. Um, yeah, but it, but it hasn't come to fruition yet. What 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 are you thinking? I mean, is there a side of you that you've got the, you have got the big box miniatures game? That is kind of like yeah, it's gonna have robots and it's gonna have sharks on robots with lasers on it. 
and there's going to be other big things. We're going to have mechanised bananas stomping about through the city. Or are you just saying, no, I've got a light card game, which is about cheese? I, I, I got to write all those things down. The mechanized bananas, I think, is that might be the final piece of what I'm what I'm looking for here. Um, I'm always so you got to spell it with a Z, though. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> bananas. Exactly. I spell everything with 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 Z's in, in my game. <laughs> um. <laughs> Here's the rules with a Z. So so. I'm always, as far as design goes, I'm always really blown away by really simple games that, uh, simple rule sets that you can really dive into and ha- have, you know, emergent gameplay that come out. The ones where you sit down and I, you play it and you're like, okay, why didn't I come up with that? So it's, <laughs> you know, it's so, it's so simple, like, or, or, or the small, um, footprint type games like the the a lot of japanese designs stuff like love letter um you know yeah. I, I look at at no thanks and i was like why didn't i think of that one i mean that one that one's awesome so i think if i were to <laughs> to come up with a game it would it would probably be on the the lighter side and and something along those lines where it's a smaller design and simple yeah. rules and have everybody jump in and play right away but there's there's different ways to to win and and um, enjoy yourself with it. I was just imagining there's like a big waste paper basket to the side of your desk that's just full of crumpled up bits of games ideas. Pretty much <laughs> that water bottle. Yeah. going. This is amazing, right? We'll do this, and then if we do that, and what we'll do is we'll call it, um, we'll call it apocalyptic courier service. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then, then I, I see the email come, come through, email like, coming nah, from Pandasaurus, and you're just like, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so up people throw it up. My my uh, my design process up until this point hasn't gotten past like punny names. Like I think that's probably my my favorite part of it is is coming up coming up with a name for the game, but then <laughs> finding the rule set has uh, has eluded me. So maybe you know maybe we'll talk in 2020. And um, and uh, I'll have I'll have something a little bit more concrete at that time. Why don't you just make a game about game manufacturing? It's not a bad idea. Um, it's not real sexy though, right? The, the sexy part's playing the game. I don't know about making. Oh, right. You know, worker we placement. we make the donuts. Easy, so. no worker. No, you could make it about anything at all. Worker placement. Mm-hmm. Do you decide to go for the light card game? You only need a couple of workers to do that. Do you go for the heavy game? You have longer points in the long run. I, I I mean I think you got legs on this one, Richard. If if you want to print it, I I know some people that could help. I you just out. wonder who could I speak to who could potentially help me manufacture <laughs> this game. I don't know. Do you know anybody? <laughs> I, I I got a few people I can put you in touch with. Well, yeah. Well, you know, you can hit me up. You can send me an email to you know the people that you know who can maybe get something good. You should do that though. You should totally do <laughs> the panda. <laughs> The GM. You know, it's 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 something we've actually we would never really want to publish a game because then we'd be in competition with our clients type thing. There'd be maybe a little bit of conflict of interest there, but we always <laughs> do. Imagine that. Pressing control. <laughs> I don't think it'd be much control. much competition though. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I deleted your file. <laughs> um, but we always do a, a sample kit every year. Um, yeah. 
where we've got, you know, cardstock samples and some, some meeples and, and different bits that we made and just things to give to designers and publishers to say like, Hey, here's a, here's a sampling of what we can do. And yeah. it's, it's really helpful if they're looking at the quote form and say, okay, what's 310 ivory core cards? Okay. We've got the samples here. So, so we make a sample kit every year and we always joke that one of these years we'll have a rule set that goes with it, right? We'll have, we'll have a game that goes with it. Um, but we've never gotten around to actually making a game that goes along with the sample kit. So maybe, maybe on down the line, um, I could say for this year's sample kit, it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it's always something, you know, we got, we have some, some game designers on our, uh, on our, our team. So we always bounce yeah. around a few ideas. You send me the sample kit, I'll send you, I'll make you a game. Well, and that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of the inspiration for it, right? We want to we've we've sponsored uh, game design jams and contests in the past. Oh, where yeah. We'll send those things, and they have you know the contest have, uh, entrants have a day or a set amount of time to make a game. And they come up with with these game rules based on just the pieces that they that that are in that that set. So. That's what we want to do is kind of spark spark some ideas and spark some game designs. I have um I have one more question for you. Okay. Okay. You are a um you've gone to the Panda GM headquarters, okay? You're staring about the archives of the games that they have. Now they have managed to amass themselves a massive amount of games, okay? Okay. Of every kind, any additions that you want. Okay. Okay. The president of Panda GM comes up to you, or the CEO taps you on the shoulder and says, Brent, you can have any three games you want just because for being you and for not, you know, not making your own game and then running away from us. What three games would you add to your collection? It can be any games at all. What any, three games? Any would you games. Add? Any three. Any three games at all. They can the be first editions, or oh, any games. Any games. Man. You can obviously keep on brand and <laughs> stay with the ones that they've made. But what three games? So, I would say we did a we did a print run for like a Korean version or. An international language version of modern art. Okay. And I really like modern art. That's one of my favorite games. And okay. that was like a limited edition type type game. So I would I would choose that one because it had really great artwork and um, it's just I, I love the the bidding mechanics in that one. So that would be number one. Okay. Uh, number two, I would say Summoner Wars Master Set. Just because, okay. yeah. Um, there's so many different different cards in there. A lot of replayability. One of my favorite one-on-one games. Um, so that would be number two, and then three. Number three, I got to go with a a, a recent flavor, um, Yokohama. Okay. I'm right. Re- yeah. I'm really digging Yokohama right now. The the deluxe version. So, because the uh, the I think the deluxe just happened, you you know that Kickstarter version, and that's it. So that that one will be hard to get your hands on. So that would 
if I was if I had the the supermarket spree right there and I had to pick three, those I think those would be the ones that I would grab. Awesome, absolutely fantastic. Um, if people want to find you on the internet webs, where can we find you on the internet webs, sir? Yeah, so uh, our website is pandagm.com. Um, there you can you can reach out to us through the quote form. Um, you can also send us an email at uh, sales at pandagm.com if you've got a specific question. Uh, we are on Twitter at pandagm, and we are on Instagram. We're trying to beef up our Instagram uh, game lately. Um, at I believe that's at pandagm too. Um, so you can you can see a picture of me on a log flume ride with three other grown men um, on that <laughs> that Instagram page uh, that was posted recently. So if, you know if that's what you're into, I would say follow the Instagram page. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and if you want to follow us, and there's no way you're going to get a picture of me on a log flume. I'm just saying, but you can find us on Twitter at We're Not Wizards. You can find us on. Facebook at We're Not Wizards, we are on Instagram, guess what, We're Not Wizards, we're on YouTube, guess what, search for We're Not Wizards, you can find us on Stitcher and Spreaker and Acast and Podknife and Spotify for some reason, no idea why, and all these wonderful places. Um, You can also find us on Apple Podcasts as well, and as we always say, if you have... um, if you have liked what you've listened to tonight, I know it's been a slightly different flavour from usual, um, but you know, change is as good as the rest, as they say. Please consider giving us a subscription, because it really helps the show. Um, if you like us even more, then drop us a rating or a review. If you are going to be dropping us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, don't give us a 10, because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us a 1 because it makes us cry. Give us a five, because it's in the middle, and it's average, and we were just a little bit average. But the person who's not been average tonight is the rather wonderful, the rather fantastic, the the man who can get things made. <laughs> it is Mr. Brent Kinney. Thank you very, very much for coming on, Brent. Thanks, Richard. I'm going to need to have you as my, my hype man. That's some of the nicest things anyone's ever said about me so I, I really appreciate you having me on today it's been a blast no, it's been a lot of fun it's still been a lot of fun um and i really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to to speak to us there is only two more things to do and the first thing is to remember that we are many things but we're not wizards i'm not there you go there you go there's no only magic that goes on in that place is taking you know resources and turning them into dreams and joy and laughter and skill and such like and the second thing is to say goodbye so it is a goodbye from brent kinney say goodbye brent see ya and it's a goodbye from me remember stay safe roll sixes look if you've got an idea if you've got a dream if you're thinking about getting a game made or designed then you know give panda a quick check out we will make sure that uh, all the links that been given tonight go in the show notes so we have notes to show um but until the next time goodbye <laughs>